Welcome to the podcast of New Covenant Church in Albuquerque, where we focus on the Bible, faith, and life issues. We hope this podcast will be helpful to you on your faith journey. Now, here's our message. Good morning, gang. In case you didn't know, we're in the book of Daniel. Uh, One of my favorite books in scripture, love studying about this young man and his three buddies that we read about, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And as we study the book of Daniel, we read it in what we call story time. They were living in what we call real time. And so I bring that up because when you pick up your Bible, we didn't have originally chapters and verses until about 550 A.D., So when they would read something like a letter from the hand of Daniel, they would read it in its entirety. We obviously don't have the time for that. And even in Daniel chapter 2, that was all meant to be read as one literary unit of thought, but there's no way we were going to make it through that in one week. So I want to give you just a little reminder background to the book of Daniel and what's happening. If you'll remember, Nebuchadnezzar is a big player uh, in the book of Daniel. It's in 606 B.C., that Nebuchadnezzar is this commanding general in the Babylonian army, and he's winning battles all over the place. And because of his military prowess, he ends up becoming the king of Babylon in 605 B.C. It's in that year that they ransack Jerusalem, they take Daniel and his buddies away, and they drag them 700 miles across the desert into Babylon. Now, by the time we get to Daniel chapter 2, we know that Nebuchadnezzar has been reigning for three years, which means Daniel has gone from the age of 14 to now he is 17. And as a 17-year-old, he is put in this crazy predicament. The most powerful ruler in all of the universe has a dream, and he's telling those that Daniel is a part of that group that we call the wise men, you better tell me what my dream is about and then give me the interpretation. And nobody can do it. But Daniel says, wait a minute. Yeah, no man can do it. But I know a God in heaven who can. Give me an opportunity to stand before the king. And so you get this 17-year-old who is willing to put his head on the chopping block and stand up before a king because he knows that his God is bigger and greater than any king that will ever sit on any earthly throne. So that's where we're at. That's your introduction. Welcome to the book of Daniel. So if you would, some of you already know what I'm going to say because you're getting your legs ready. Would you just stand with me as we honor the king Uh, In reading his word, we're in Daniel chapter 2. We've got verses 31 through 49 uh, this week. So still a decent sized passage that we're going to get through together. He says, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty of an exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now this was the dream. Now we will tell, you, tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. 
you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it is broken in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Then Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king And he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Thanks, gang. You can have a seat. So there's a lot there. Uh, Even in just these about 18 or 19 verses, there's a lot that we need to unpack and dissect. But again, I want to remind us that there's one overarching theme, one overarching big idea that Daniel could walk away with, that his buddies could walk away with, that Nebuchadnezzar was supposed to walk away with, and that... 2,600-ish years later, we're supposed to walk away with it. simply this. Kingdoms will rise and kingdoms will fall. But you know that the kingdom of God stands forever? That's going to play into everything that we're about to talk about this morning. Everything is going to revolve around the fact that kingdoms will rise and kingdoms will fall, but the kingdom of God stands forever. And man, 2,600 years later, what relevance that has in our lives today, because you may be a bit frustrated with presidents and vice presidents and Congress and state representatives and whatever else or whoever else it is that's in office, but don't freak out too much. Their time is limited. Every kingdom gets brought down that's not set up by God himself. However, God's kingdom is going to reign forever. So let's go back to Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He sees this statue. It's got a head of gold. It's got a chest of silver. It's got a belly and thighs of bronze. It's got got legs and feet that are mixed with iron. They're mixed with clay. And then this rock comes and it wipes out all of them. And Neb doesn't know what to make of it. So Daniel begins to explain it to him. After spending a night in prayer, he explains this to him. The head of gold, Neb, that's you. That's your kingdom. Now I love it because this is prophetic. It's going to show us what's going to happen for hundreds of years into the future. So the Babylonian Empire is in existence. Uh, Neb's group is ruling from 626 to 539 B.C., And amongst the Babylonians, the king is the one who dictates everything that happens. 
No matter what he says, it goes. But then they get taken out. They get wiped out by a group called the Medo-Persians. They are the chest of silver. The Medo-Persians come in and they rule from 539 to about 331 B.C., little over 200 years they're reigning and ruling. Now they're looked at as silver because it's not quite as valuable as gold. Remember, this is Neb's dream. So he's seeing him as the head being the most superior to all other kingdoms. The reason that he would have seen the Medo-Persians as a little bit less superior or a little bit more inferior is that there was a reduction in power amongst their leaders. The law of the Medes and the Persians together said that even the king cannot disobey or overrule a law that he had written into uh, authority or written into law. Whereas with Neb, he could write something down and then just overrule it later. He could basically do whatever he wanted. Well, then there's the third kingdom that comes along. It's the kingdom that's seen as the belly and thighs of bronze. This kingdom was led by a guy named Alexander the Great. He came in in 331 B.C., and his group ruled till about 63 B.C. Now, the Greeks, they practiced what we would call a republican form of government, which gave even less power to the chief ruler. So in Neb's mind, they're just bronze. They're definitely not worth as much. And then about 270 years later, this group that we know of as the Romans come in. And they end up in power from 63 B.C. to about 476 A.D., they last the longest. They are the feet of iron and clay. The Romans not only had a public or a republic form of government, but they had multiple leaders at one time overseeing different areas in their empire. And in Neb's mind, with him being a sole dictator, he definitely saw them as not worth nearly as much as the Babylonian empire. Now, the other thing about this statue is that we know that the Romans were tough. They came in and they ruled with an, literally an iron fist, let alone the iron feet that are talked about. Interesting thing about the Roman Empire, did you know that nobody ever wiped them out or took them down? They crumbled from the inside out because their leadership, those that were ruling, couldn't get along. They crumbled from the inside out. What a great lesson from the Romans that we better make sure that we're on the same page as leadership when we're moving forward, and we better make sure that, that leadership is fully and completely and totally dedicated to the Lord Jesus, or our little kingdom will be taken down. Now, there's a fifth kingdom, and that's the rock that's cut from the mountain. That's the kingdom of God that's going to last forever. Now, we can look throughout history and see that kingdom after kingdom that sets itself up gets wiped out, but we can look into the future and find out that the kingdom of God is going to last forever. Again, we spent 48 weeks in the book of Revelation, and one of the things that we discover is that kingdom after kingdom gets wiped out. Eventually, God is going to say enough is enough of these evil kingdoms. He's going to rapture his church out of here. Once he raptures us out of here, we're going to, there's going to be this seven-year tribulation that's going to take place. Seven-year tribulation is going to end. We're going to come with Jesus at the end of the seven-year tribulation. Then he's going to set up his millennial kingdom. Now, here's the crazy thing about God's kingdom. It's what I would call an already and a not yet. God has already begun to establish his kingdom on the earth. How's he doing it? He's doing it through his church. But we don't visibly see his kingdom set up yet, and we don't see him on the throne until that thousand-year reign of Christ. Then Christ is going to reign for a thousand years. We get to co-reign with him. How awesome is that going to be? 
We don't deserve it, but yet he's going to allow us to be co-heirs with him. We're going to see all this take place for a thousand years while Satan is bound. There's this theocracy going on, which means that Jesus is the king. He's reigning and ruling over everything. What's going to be mind-boggling is even during that thousand years, while people are, are making babies, those that made it through the tribulation and trusted Jesus, their kids are going to rebel against Jesus, even though there's no devil tempting them. So that tells you a lot about the human heart. When that thousand-year reign ends, Satan gets released for a brief period of time. Those babies that were made during the millennium that rebel against Jesus are going to team up with Satan. Jesus, again, is going to say, enough is enough. It's going to be a quick battle. He's going to cast Satan into the lake of fire where he's going to be with the Antichrist and the false prophet. Then there's going to be what we call the great white throne judgment. All the unbelievers are going to be cast into the lake of fire. And then the eternal state is going to start. And then we get to just be with Jesus and the new heaven, in the new earth, in that new Jerusalem, that holy city that comes down out of heaven. And man, I can't wait. But until we get there, because that's all future prophecy, we got to be Daniels in Babylon. And what does that look like? Okay, we're only like 13 minutes into this thing. Does anybody's brain hurt yet? <laughs> that was the goal. So what we're going to do is we're going to transition into the very practical steps or aspects of the book of Daniel. We're going to go back to our life lessons. We did five last week from the first part of Daniel chapter two. We've just got three this week when it comes to life lessons from the book of Daniel. So we're on to our sixth. From Daniel chapter two, verses 31 through 45. The next life lesson that we see, and again, this is vitally important for building off of our big idea that we already looked at. Man's reign is temporary. God's is eternal. Therefore, choose wisely who you will follow. Unfortunately, like Nebuchadnezzar, too many of us living in this country have put our hope in magicians and in enchanters and sorcerers and in Chaldeans. We just call them by a different name. Now we call them psychics, or Oprah, or Dr. Oz, or Dr. Phil, or careers, or money, or abilities, or possessions, or professions, or even pastors, none of which are, are what we want to build our lives upon. We want to build our lives upon the Lord Jesus himself. So the question for us today is, what are you building your life upon? Remember, man's reign is temporary. God's is eternal. So let's choose wisely who it is that we're going to follow. We've got way too many people running around putting, them, putting their hope and their trust in a president or a vice president or a congress or whatever. Don't get me wrong. As believers, we should speak into politics. We should be voting we should be pushing for biblical principle to be instituted into our country because our country was founded upon the word of God. We should push for those very things. But I'm going to say this. Don't get mad at me. I'm going to say this. It doesn't matter who ends up getting put into the presidency in November of 2024. They are not, they are not, that person is not going to change the hearts and the minds of the people of the country that we live in. Only Jesus can do that. Now, again, I'm voting for biblical principle. Don't get me wrong. There, there, there is a, a way that I'm going to go out and vote based off what Scripture says and based off who is running. But it doesn't matter who it is that gets placed into the presidency. They will not change the hearts and minds of people that are not following the Lord Jesus. Only he can do that. 
which means that we need to put more emphasis on us as believers going out and sharing the gospel, seeing Jesus made known, than we do putting all of our eggs in the basket of a president or a vice president or a congress or state representatives. Y'all with me? That's the Jesus we follow. He's the one that's going to change things. Now, in verses 46 through 49 of Daniel chapter 2, the next life lesson that we get that's extremely important for us is God rewards those that stand for him. Don't ever miss that. God rewards those that stand for him. Now, I want to be abundantly clear on this. That does not mean that your rewards are going to come this side of heaven. In fact, it might be the opposite. Any of you all, by any chance, heard of the group called Voice of the Martyrs? If you ever get a chance to read their magazines or even just get their app and you can just hear what's going on. Lately, I've been following what's going on in the country of India. And there are um, many uprisings in India right now because of their new emperor, president. Um, They are pushing for a purged Hindu state, which means that if you are a believer in India carrying a Bible and worshiping Jesus, they're actually taking them, beating them, torturing them, and then burning them to death because they are trying to purge by fire the nation of India and make it into a fully Hindu uh, nation or Hindu state. And the stories that we are hearing of brothers and sisters in Christ that are saying, it's worth it. We will not recant our faith in Jesus because he is worth it, gets me fired up and excited because they understand that the rewards that they have awaiting them are far greater than anything that could be offered them this side of heaven. Here's why I bring that up. We read the book of Daniel, and we love Daniel, don't we? Because he gets thrown into a lion's den, and he gets rescued. He gets thrown into a fiery furnace, and he gets rescued. But did you know that even in Scripture, that's not the norm? That's the exception. God kept them, Daniel and his buddies, around for a a period of time on purpose. But if you read the book of Hebrews, and specifically when you get to what we call the Hebrews Hall of Faith, way more people died for following Jesus than got rescued. However, every single person that you read about in the Hebrews Hall of Faith got rescued too, just in a whole different way. So I hope you realize this. No matter what mankind does to you, you'll be rescued. God has a way of taking his kids home. He might just do it in different ways for each of us sitting in this room. And that really segues me to our eighth life lesson, and that is simply this, standing upon the rock of salvation, standing upon the rock of Jesus, can cause others to jump onto the rock of salvation. This will play out later. You'll you'll find out once we get uh, a few more chapters in that I think Nebuchadnezzar, I think we're going to see him in heaven. I think. Based off everything that I see as we get towards the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign and the end of Nebuchadnezzar's life, it sure looks like he turns his heart and his mind towards Yahweh and dedicates himself solely and completely to him. I'm jumping not only weeks ahead, but months ahead. We'll get there, and you'll see this. But one of the questions that I want to pose to all of us is, how did Daniel do it? How did he remain calm in the midst of intense danger? How did he remain calm knowing that at any moment he could have been quartered? Remember that fun way that the Babylonians had for killing people? They would take somebody that they thought was guilty of any type of treason or if they just didn't like them and they would take four really sturdy big trees and they would bend them in and then they would hoist the victim up and they would tie one limb to each tree and then they would have somebody 
uh, ready to cut those trees all at once. And then the trees would launch back into their regular position, ripping off the limbs of the victim. Doesn't that sound like just tons of fun? Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? But that is what Daniel was in the midst of, knowing that that could happen to him. But how did he do it? Because I'll tell you what, we don't just get thrown into the fire and then stand for Jesus. The small choices that we make that we talked about last week will radically dictate how we live our lives today. The way you live right now is most likely a result of small decisions that you have made all throughout your life leading up to this day. So how do we get there? Well, again, I want to be really practical. How do I live like Daniel in a Babylonian world? Walk with God regularly. I am praying that our walk with Jesus is a habit. It's not a Sunday. In other words, I'm I'm walking with Jesus every single day of the week. Listen to Daniel chapter 1. Verses 3 through 4 again. This will tell you a little bit about Daniel's background. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. There was something about Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar recognized that made Daniel valuable in his service. What he didn't recognize is what what made Daniel valuable was the fact that his parents seemingly invested greatly in his life. We know that based off his name. We know that based off Hananiah, uh, Mishael, and Azariah's name. Uh, We know that based off the fact that they were able to stand in the face of a wicked and uh, a tyrant of a king we know that they most likely walked with God on a daily basis from the time that they were young. And again, what a great lesson for us. Are any of y'all sick of hearing statistics about kids that are walking away from the Lord in their first year of college? Well, then let's start doing something about it. Let's invest in them. Let's disciple them. Men, those of you that are sitting in this room, if you have kids that you need to be discipling, disciple them. If not, find one that needs to be discipled and grown and invested in. It's, it's pretty neat to know that on any given Wednesday when we have 50, 60 kids that are going up to the warehouse to worship the Lord from junior high up to their senior year of high school, a third to half of them may be coming from homes that don't, they don't hear anything about Jesus throughout the week. Right there is our pool of young men and young women that need to be discipled and need to be learning more and more about Jesus so that we can sharpen them and send them out as Daniels. But we can't do that unless we're walking with God regularly. Well, let me take us a little further on what that looks like. If you've got your Bibles and you look at Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21, while you're turning there, I want to give you a little bit of background again on the book of Ephesians. It's the first book that we went through Uh, when I had the privilege of getting to come here and get called as your pastor in September of 22? When did I come here? We'll go with September of 22. Is it 22, David? Thank you, he knows. David's like, it's only been a year and a half, but it feels like 11. Um, (laughs) When we got here and we went through the book of Ephesians, we noted that this is being written to a body of believers, that this is a difficult place to be a believer smack dab in the middle of the city if you all remember there's this temple it's one of the seven ancient wonders of the world it's set up to this goddess called diana or in greek it's artemis 
and a kind way of describing what Diana or Artemis was all about. She was called a fertility goddess. Really, she was a prostitution goddess. At any given point in time, there would be at least a thousand temple prostitutes gathered around having sex with men on the steps of the temple. And it's in the midst of that that Paul writes this letter to the, to the Ephesian church. And in chapter 5, verses 15 through 21, he says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Those aren't hard things to do. Those are impossible things to do unless the Lord Jesus is the one doing them through you. Specifically, going back to Ephesians 5, 17, he says, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. How in the world do you know what the will of the Lord is? Well, I'm going to tell you that ultimately the only way we come to know what the will of the Lord is is if he reveals it to us. Aren't you glad that he did? It's right here. We have the blessed privilege of getting to pick this up on a daily basis anytime we want and get to know more of what God is like and more of what his will is like. And that leads me to the final thing we're going to take a look at this morning. And I pray that this just comes across as extremely practical and helpful for you all. But how do we have an intentional time of prayer and being in God's word? Because there's got to be a plan behind it. Well, this is where the three P's come in when it comes to intentional prayer, when it comes to an intentional time of being in God's word. I would encourage you, think think through these three P's. I have to do it all of the time. But first of all, do you have a period of time that you just spend with God? Jelaine and I have talked about this numerous times, but it's amazing how, have you ever been right next to your spouse? I mean, you're laying next to your spouse in bed, but you feel like you're worlds apart. Not that you got into some big fight, there hasn't been some big blow up, but you've just gone through life. You've gone through taking care of the kids, getting them ready for school, getting them to school, going to work, going grocery shopping, doing laundry, vacuuming the house, whatever. And in the midst of all of that, you end up drifting apart because you just haven't spent any intentional time together. Are we the only messed up married couple that's ever been there before? <laughs> Y'all been there? And that's because we have to have a period of time set aside where we are focused on and dedicated to one another. The second thing is that place. Do you have that place that you spend time with Jesus? That place where the kids aren't running around and screaming, people aren't honking at you on the freeway, you're not at work trying to do a million different tasks, but just you and Jesus for a period of time in a specific place. And lastly, do you have a plan that you have put in place? Again, some of you all, you might have your own personal study time and you've got a plan for how you're going to read through God's word. But if you don't, or even if you do and you want to take up the challenge together, they're they're sitting out in the foyer. You can print them off of our website, but it's our New Covenant Bible and book reading plan. And again, the reason that I'm fired up about this is that this was actually a lot of thought and a lot of work of putting a reading plan together in such a way that you could pick up God's word and you can see Jesus on every page. 
On top of that, it's a plan that's put together in such a way that you can see the interconnectedness of God's word. Do you know that God's word is not just a bunch of random books and a bunch of random stories, but it's one grand narrative? It's really fun that when you get further into the study, you will begin to read books like 1 Samuel and then some of the Psalms together, hand in hand, and here's why. In the book of 1 Samuel, you're seeing what's happening in David's life outwardly, the wars that he's going through. He's being pursued by his own son who wants to kill him. And then if you're wondering, I wonder how he feels. Glad you asked. Pick up the Psalms and read Psalm 40 to about Psalm 80, and you'll see how those books tie together. And so you'll be reading back and forth there. So I would love for you to pick that up, and that will give you a way to get intentional about your prayer life and your time in God's Word. How does all that relate to the book of Daniel? Again, I think I have to speculate a little bit, but if I'm looking back at history and how Daniel lived his life, if I'm looking at how Daniel walked with the Lord, regardless of what was going on around him, I'd be willing to bet that Daniel had a specific plan for his prayer life. In fact, I can do more than speculate. Later on in the book of Daniel, you're going to find out that one of the reasons his neck was on the chopping block is because he had a planned prayer time with God. And even though a law was set that he was not allowed to pray to anybody other than Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel said, I'm sorry, but I've already got my time planned with God. And there's only one God that I kneel for. There's only one God that I bow for. There's only one God that I worship. Therefore, that's what I'm going to do. And if you have to kill me for it, so be it. You don't have to answer this out loud, but are you there? Are you at the point right now in your walk with Jesus, you love him so much that you wouldn't trade anything in the world for your relationship with Jesus, including your life? Would you be willing to put your neck on the line and say, I will die for Jesus because he's that worth it? Now listen, God rewarded Daniel immediately. He spared him. He spared him through the fiery furnace. He spared him from the jowls of the lions. But sometimes I wonder, because Daniel's a real guy, do you ever wonder sometimes if Daniel thought, Lord, I wish you would have just taken me home through the fire? Because then I wouldn't have had to go another 30, 40, 50 years underneath the reign and the rule of a guy like Nebuchadnezzar. And then... Daniel has the privilege of seeing Nebuchadnezzar probably give his life to Yahweh, but then Nebuchadnezzar dies, and who else comes in? Now it's the Medo-Persians. I'm not even going to get into how they tortured people. They were no nicer than the Babylonians, in fact, probably worse. Again, all the while, Daniel's a real person. I can imagine being Daniel going, man, the flames were so hot that if you wouldn't have protected me, it would have just incinerated me like almost immediately. Couldn't you have just taken me home? So sometimes being rescued physically is not always the greatest thing. One thing I will tell you is that when Daniel finally did die, and he remained in Babylon, he died underneath the, the rule of another king in Medo-Persia, I do know that when Daniel finally did get home, and he was finally with the Lord, he wasn't asking to come back. So regardless of whether we live a long and ripe old life, or whether God takes us a little bit earlier, one way or another, we will be rescued. And the one promise that I will make you is that everything I've studied in Scripture, we are not going to be up in heaven going, man, I wish you would have left me there just a little bit longer. Lord, would you please put me back? I, I don't think that's going to be the case. Well, let me finish with this before we transition into communion. Daniel's faith in his God always led to action. This is one of the things I love, not only about Daniel, but in all of the heroes of the faith in Scripture, their faith in the Lord 
always led to action. Do you know that as believers, we should be people of action? So I'm praying that when we leave here today, we are so fired up about who Jesus is, not just emotionally, but we know up here in our head, we know in our hearts just how amazing our Jesus is that we can't do anything but talk about him, serve him, bring him honor and glory. The way we respond to what God's word says, the way we respond to what God is saying to us through his word will speak volumes about our theology. In other words, about how big our God is. Let me ask you this morning, how big is your God? How big is your Jesus? Is he really able to conquer and overcome anything in the entire universe? Well, scriptures tell me yes. And I love to study the scriptures. And as you know, I, I love apologetics. So if we could dive into the preponderance of evidence that points to the scriptures, all 66 books of the Bible, absolutely, authoritatively, without a doubt, being the word of God without question, I would say that if we picked that up and we recognize that, and then we read what God's word says about who God is, about who Jesus is, we couldn't leave here anything but confident, not in ourselves, in the God that we serve. I don't, again, mean this arrogantly, but my dad can beat up everybody else's dad. You know that? Did you know that your dad can beat up everybody else's dad? That's, I don't know if that's the best way of putting it or not, but that's the God that we serve. Let me ask you this morning, if you're a believer in Christ already this morning, do you need to commit to walking more regularly with him? If so, today's a great day to do it. Maybe you're sitting in this room and you've never committed your life to Christ at all. The simple message of the gospel is clear from Genesis to Revelation. There is a God that made you with a purpose, and that is to bring him honor and glory and be in relationship with him. But what we discover is that we do anything but bring him honor and glory, and we hurt and sever our relationship with him. Because of that, because of the fact that God is all holy and all perfect, there's nothing that I can do to pay God back. Therefore, somebody had to come and in exchange make me perfect because I could never perfect myself. And that's where Jesus steps in and says, because I am God Almighty, because I am God in flesh, my death on the cross will pay for all of your sins. And then to prove it, watch this, I'm going to rise from the dead. Then I'm going to come back and get you. But prior to that, give your life to me, Jesus says and you will never regret it. And then one day when I take you home, whether it be the rapture or death, you will have no regrets. That is our segue into what we are about to celebrate this morning, and that is communion. Before you take the elements of communion, I wanna just share with you why it is that we take communion and what communion is all about, because I don't ever want it to just become a ritual that we do, because that's just something we always do at the end of the month. I learned something interesting uh, this week as I was studying through the Gospels, and that is that in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record a group of people coming to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It is only in the book of John that we learn that it was actually Peter that hacked off that guy's ear. Y'all remember that story? They're in the Garden of Gethsemane. They're there to arrest Jesus. Peter thinks, well, Jesus probably needs a little bit of help, so I'm going to whip out my sword. I'm going to hack the guy's ear off. We find out that his name is Malchus, 
He is the chief servant of the high priest. Now, only in the book of Luke do we find out that Jesus healed Malchus's ear. Here's why I bring all of that up in communion. We think how great a thing he did for Malchus in healing his ear. Actually, what Jesus did was protecting Peter. Because if you touch the servant of the high priest, it's death by execution. And in multiple different ways. They could have chosen multiple different ways to torture Peter and then to kill him. You know what Jesus did by healing that guy's ear? He removed all evidence that Peter had ever done anything wrong. Think about the parallel for a moment. One day, we're going to stand before God Almighty, who has every reason in the world to immediately execute us, wipe us out, separate us from his presence, and send us to heaven. But Jesus steps in and says, I have removed every piece of evidence that could ever be brought against you that you've ever done anything wrong. Now hear me out. We sin and we do wrong things. The awesome part about Jesus stepping in is that it has no sticking power. All the evidence has been removed. So the Lord God Almighty looks at us and because of what Jesus has done on our behalf, sees a perfected saint in his eyes, even though I do dumb things. Peter's move was foolish. None of you sitting in this room have ever done anything foolish, right? We've never done anything where we've stepped in and thought, maybe Jesus needs my help. Well, with that being said, praise God that what we're about to celebrate this morning is that without any help of mine, Jesus perfected me based off his beaten body and shed blood on the cross. Isn't that a great reason to celebrate communion this morning? I'm going to pray. As soon as I am done, feel free to get up and take the elements of communion. Nobody ever listens to me on this part, but when you get up, go down the right-hand side to get communion and then come back on the right-hand side so that we're all not wearing grape juice afterwards. Okay, so let me pray for us, and then as soon as I'm done, um, go ahead and get up and you can head towards the communion table that's closest to you. Lord Jesus, we come before you and we just praise you for this morning. Thank you for your act on our behalf where you removed all of the evidence of guilt. Lord, not because of anything we've done, but in spite of who we are and what we've done, you came and you exchanged your perfect righteousness for our unrighteousness. Lord, as your word says, he who, who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And Lord Jesus, that is what we celebrate together this morning. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus that we all pray together. Amen. Gang, feel free to get up and have communion together. This concludes today's message. We thank you so much for listening. We'd love for you to connect with us. You can do that at our website, nccabq.org. From there, you can submit any questions, feedback, and your prayer requests. nccabq.org is also where you can learn more about New Covenant Church. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters, browse our online message archive, and even tune in and watch the stream of each weekly message. We hope you'll join us. Have a great week.